St. James Lutheran Church. This is our Palm Sunday service, and I'm glad that you're joining with us this morning. Uh, let me give you a few announcements here before we, before we begin worship. Uh, so first of all, a lot of you have been uh, doing this, and I would encourage you to keep on doing it. You can give uh, by mailing your offering and tithe here to the church. You can also give online now. If you go to the top of our webpage um, and click on the Give button, it'll give you directions there. And uh, some of you are doing that, and it's working out well. Uh, services this week. Uh, we will not have Wednesday evening service, of course. Uh, we will have Monday, Thursday service, uh, Thursday night at 7 o'clock, and Good Friday service, Friday night at 7 o'clock as well. And then, of course, uh, Easter Sunday, uh, we'll be back here again next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Uh, some of you uh, have done this. If you uh, want to have communion at some point during the week, uh, you can come up here. Uh, we can do this in small groups. Uh, if you or your family want to have Holy Communion, please let me know. And um, we can meet up here, and you can receive communion. Uh, so just reach out and let me know. And then finally, we're going to try this out this morning. Uh, for those of you who would like, um, at 1030, uh, we're going to try to do a Bible study online via Zoom. And uh, if you want to be involved in this, uh, send me at some point... Uh, during the service this morning, uh, email me your email address, or you can text me your email address, 
and I will send you an invitation uh, to that email address that you give me that will include a link that will get you into this meeting. And so um, we'll probably be done here with the worship service around 945, and then we'll plan on starting the Bible study at 1030, and uh, in, between the serv- in between the service and the Bible study, I'll send you out that link. So if you want to uh, be involved in that, it's, uh, we'll see how it works. I've not done this before. Uh, but uh, it, could, it could be a good chance for us to spend some time around God's Word, and as well, uh, a good chance to uh, see some faces that you haven't seen in a few weeks and catch up a little bit too. So uh, send me your email addresses, and we'll do that uh, this morning after the worship service. All right, let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, merciful Father, you keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We confess that we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. We have not heeded your law, nor have we rejoiced in your gospel. We confess that things have fallen apart. But Lord, you keep covenant even when we do not. Your love is steadfast when ours is frail and fallible. You are faithful even when we are faithless. We want You to be our God and we want to be Your covenant people. Grant us the gift of faith. By Your Holy Spirit, work in us steadfastness and singleness of heart that we might manifest Your love in the keeping of Your commandments and the living of Your Gospel. O Lord, merciful Father, hear our prayers in the name of Your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the Mediator of the new and eternal covenant, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from John 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Amen. Psalm that we're going to read this morning is Psalm 142. It's the last of the penitential psalms, and we didn't get a chance to talk, to it, talk about it during Lent. And I'm not going to preach about it this morning, but I did uh, not want Lent to slip by without us at least getting a chance to read it together. Psalm 142. The psalmist says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me, in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you've done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. 
Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 50. And in Isaiah 50, the coming suffering one that Isaiah talks about frequently in Isaiah 40 to 55 is talking to God and he's saying, there's no way that anybody will be able to hold me guilty on the last day because God is on my side. He says this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? The epistle reading, and I feel like this reading comes up four or five times during the lectionary, uh, in the lectionary during the church year, is the classic uh, Christ-centered hymn from Paul in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then the Gospel reading, which is the classic Palm Sunday reading from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and will be the sermon text this morning. Now, When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is um, sometimes called, this Sunday is, we, we almost always refer to it as Palm Sunday. Uh, in the lectionary readings, it's sometimes referred to as Passion Sunday. For those churches uh, that don't, ha- don't meet for services during Holy Week and don't get together and read uh, the scripture about Christ's trial and his crucifixion, uh, typically this is the Sunday uh, where um, they read about the crucifixion of Jesus, so that next Sunday, Easter Sunday, they read about the resurrection. Uh, you and I, though, t- are going to meet together this Thursday and talk about the Last Supper. We're going to meet together on Friday and talk about Jesus' crucifixion. And so uh, this morning, what I'd like to do is talk about Palm Sunday, talk about the event uh, where Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly uh, a week, uh, exactly one week before his, um, his coming trial his betrayal, trial, and execution. And um, several things, that, I mean, this, this text here, these two stories go together, the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the, so, the so-called cleansing of the temple. Uh, every gospel writer except for John puts these two stories back to back. They naturally go together. And there's so much in here that we could talk about. I feel like I say this every week. Uh, there's so much in here, but I just kind of want to spend a few minutes drawing out just a few things here. I mean, this story is about Jesus being the king, right? I mean, that's what, that's what all the people who are gathered around who are throwing down their cloaks and uh, uh, branches so that he can uh, ride in on them. This is what they all believe, is that this is the coming king. Blessed is the one who comes. This is the son of David. And um, this is what they want. They want Jesus to be a king. So let's talk about what kind of king Jesus is this morning. Uh, three things. There's way more than that in here, but three things that we can point out is that, first of all, uh, Jesus is a meek king. The, the, he comes in on a donkey, and the text that gets quoted by Matthew here to explain why it is that Jesus would ride a donkey comes from Zechariah chapter 9. And if I can, let me read a couple of these verses to you. Zechariah 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's a prophetic code word for uh, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. No, this is why it's important that he's riding on a donkey. Very next verse. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim is a code word in the prophets for Israel. And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. Peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So when Jesus comes and is king, he will be the king over the whole world. 
And as the king over the whole, whole world, there'll be no more war because there'll be no more countries fighting against each other. And so when Jesus comes in, he comes in a little bit strange. He doesn't come in riding on a huge, magnificent war horse. This is what we're used to in the ancient world when a king would come into a city. Uh, even in the medieval world, uh, he would be riding on a magnificent horse. If you've been to uh, the art museum in Forest Park, you'll know that there's a massive statue that sits outside there uh, that was built in 1906 called the Apotheosis of St. Louis. And it's a picture of King Louis IX, uh, the king of France, uh, who is the namesake of the city of St. Louis, uh, riding and conquering on this massive horse. This is what we expect the warrior kings to ride in on. Uh, but Jesus doesn't ride in on a warrior horse. Jesus rides in on a donkey. When I first, when I first was working on this and writing out my notes, I, I wrote out that Jesus uh, comes in weakness. And then I thought, as I was studying this week, I thought, no, that's actually the wrong word. Jesus isn't coming to not fight. Jesus is coming because there is a war. It's just that his fighting is different than the normal fighting we think of. He's not leading an army. Jesus is coming to fight by losing. Jesus is coming to be defeated and to win the battle by allowing himself to be defeated. And I'm not sure why his original hears, I'm not sure why the people didn't catch this imagery of the donkey being an animal piece, probably because they just knew Zechariah 9, that when the future king came, he would be riding on a donkey and kind of filtered out the part about peace because their expectations of what the Messiah were, were that he would be a man of war. But Jesus isn't a man of war, except the kind of war that he fights by being killed in combat, a strange kind of war. Jesus doesn't come to fight necessarily, he comes to lose, and by losing, winning. So Jesus is a king of meekness. Along with this, Jesus is a king, he personally is a king of meekness, but he's a king for the weak, the weak ones. Look down at verse 14, he comes into the city, he cleanses the temple, and then immediately in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. It's kind of a strange thing to say. This is right after he cleanses the temple, the blind and the lame come up there. What's going on here? Well, this is an interesting fact of Israel's history. In 2 Samuel 5, David is the first Israeli king to conquer the city of Jerusalem. It's not naturally an Israeli city, it belonged to the Jebusites. David wanted it for several different reasons. One is that it's really, really well defense, uh, it's, it's easily defendable. It sits on an outcropping of rock that makes it very, very hard to conquer. And so when David was conquering it the first time, he uh, besieged it. Uh, but the people, the Jebusites inside the city, thought there's no way that this guy's actually going to be able to conquer this city. And so at one point, the king of the Jebusites taunts David and says, hey, our regular watch people and soldiers are kind of tired, so we've gathered up all the lame people and the blind people in our city, and we're going to put them on watch, and we're still not scared of you. What David uh, discovered, though, is that although he wasn't going to be able to conquer the city by conventional methods, by siege or by just charging it, he discovered a secret tunnel that led up from the base of the city, the, the, the hill that the city's built on, up underneath the city walls and into the middle of the city. And so he and his men went up through this secret tunnel, and when they had conquered the city, David, out of retaliation, said, no lame or blind person will ever come into the holy place in this city. 
So from then on, there's this tradition that the lame and the blind are not allowed into the temple. What's Jesus doing here? He's taking those who are disenfranchised because of their weakness, and he's repairing them to make them fit for worship, to bring them back into the community. Look, think about this for a second. Every philosophical system in the world rewards strength. Is this not true? Think about just basic economics. It's the financially healthy who are designed to survive. It's the financially weak who sometimes those of us who believe in a free market will say, it's good if the businesses that are a drag on the economy kind of weed themselves out. Think about materialism. Think about philosophical materialism. Think about evolutionary biology. According to evolutionary biology, it's normal. It's appropriate for those that are weak or sick are old to die off so that those who are strong can pass on their genes, so that those who are strong can have access to the resources that's necessary for the survival of life. It's an interesting thing about this, uh, about the coronavirus, is that almost everybody I hear talking about it is extremely concerned that a lot of the people who are getting very, very sick and a lot of the people who are dying from the coronavirus are those who are older or who have underlying health issues. But according to the precepts of philosophical materialism, why would this be a problem? Why would it not be a good and necessary thing that the herd gets culled, so to speak? That those who are weak, those who are older, get weeded out by this? Well, none of us actually thinks that, and rightly so. Even people who reject God would reject this. And the reason why is because they know God has placed on their hearts because they're made in his image that there's something right and necessary about the weak being helped. If this isn't the case, then it shouldn't matter, right? The only only ground that you and I have for saying, no, it is necessary that we sacrifice and help to support those who are uh, physically sick and weak. The only ground we have in saying that is if there's a God who made all people, healthy people and sick people, strong people and weak people, if there's a God who made all people in his image, and so life is not just material, it's not just biology, but life has intrinsic value. This, This truth, the fact of the intrinsic value of human life, finds its nexus in Jesus of Nazareth, who becomes human himself, so that he can save and rescue the weak ones, the ones that society is most eager to say, well, it's okay if if they're gone. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is the God of the weak. So Jesus is personally a king of meekness. He's also a king for those who are weak. But finally, Jesus is the king who rules as God. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 is this uh, famous, this this is the Palm Sunday verse, right? The crowds that went before Jesus and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna is an interesting word. Here it sounds like it's being used as kind of an exclamation of praise. Hosanna in the highest. It's actually, though, a prayer. It's not an exclamation of prayer. The one time it gets used in the Old Testament is in Psalm 118. Let me read that to you now. In Psalm 118, the psalmist says, Save us. We pray, Yahweh. That word save us is actually the word Hosanna. Hosanna just means save us or save us now. 
Save us now, we pray, Yahweh. It's a prayer to Yahweh to save us. That's what Hosanna is. Yahweh, we pray, give us success. And then there's a shift in the psalm. The very next verse says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. So, look, there's two people in Psalm 118. There's Yahweh, to whom we pray, Hosanna. Save us now, we pray, Yahweh. But then there's this one who comes in the name of Yahweh. And it looks, doesn't it? It looks like back in Matthew 21, that the people who are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem have somehow managed to conflate the two together. Yahweh and this one who's coming in the name of Yahweh. Let me read it again. Uh, Hosanna to the son of David. Now in Psalm 118, it's Hosanna to Yahweh. Save us, Yahweh. But here it's Yahweh. It's It's language that in Psalm 118 is for Yahweh. But here in Matthew, it's for the son of David. It's for this guy who's riding in on the donkey. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Hosanna in the highest. Look, Jesus comes in as God. And I don't even know, I, I'm guessing that the people who are all chanting this don't even really get what they're saying. In fact, most commentators believe that they're thinking of Hosanna the way that you and I think of Hosanna, not as a prayer, save us, but as an exclamation of praise. Something along the lines of, you're great, you're magnificent, Hosanna to you, Lord. But actually, what they're doing is they're praying to Jesus. They're, they're offering to Jesus something that's only appropriate to, to offer to God. And he's not stopping them. Because even if they don't get it, Jesus gets it and he's accepting their worship. Jesus comes as God. See, this is what the the problems that you and I have are problems that can only be solved by God. Jesus doesn't come to problem solve. Jesus doesn't come, I've said this before, but Jesus doesn't come to give advice. Jesus doesn't come to win a political or a military battle. Jesus comes because the problems he's come to solve are problems that only God can solve. Think about what we're going through now. It's always funny to me when there's a crisis like this, a health crisis or an economic crisis, that it extremely quickly turns political. If you're on the right side, you like to blame the people who are on the left for the problems. If you're on the left side, you like to blame the people who are on the right. It's just something that we naturally do. As if what we need is better politicians who can actually help us. We know that this is not the case. Politicians are good. The best of them are good. At worst, they can be damaging. But basically, even the best of them, all they can do is help out. They can make life a little bit easier. Think about uh, doctors. The problems that we have are problems that doctors can't solve. And of course, you know I'm not saying that doctors aren't good. Doctors can certainly help. But that's the limit of what they can do. The problems that we have are problems of death. Doctors can't solve that. Politicians can't solve your concern about... There's no politician that is so intelligent and so powerful that he or she can completely solve all your financial problems forever so that you'll never worry about money again. See, that's what your deepest need is, to have security, to have no financial problems ever again. There's no financial planner, no politician, no scientist, no doctor, as good as all of them are sometimes. There's none that can actually solve our deepest problems. Only God can do that. And so when Jesus comes, he doesn't come to problem solve. He comes to repair us and the whole world. Now, this story that I just told you, the story that's in Matthew, is fundamentally, take these two stories together, it's fundamentally about this. I'm going to say this slowly. It's fundamentally about who the king is. 
the type of king that Jesus has come to be and our expectations of what the king should be and how these two don't match up. You know, and we'll read about this later this week, that everybody who is worshiping Jesus right now is going to abandon him, even his closest friends. Because although they recognize that he's the true king, their expectations of what this king should be don't match up with who Jesus really is. You know, and this is true for us too. We all want, we all want the king to come riding in on that huge Louis IX horse to rescue us and to save the day. But when he comes in, he comes in on a donkey and he comes in weak and frail. And so it's kind of irritating. It's kind of frustrating. Like, God, aren't you going to do something? Jesus, aren't you going to help, help us now? I've got this friend who I've known for, uh, since high school who, not a believer, and he was posting, uh, he posted memes on so- social media all the time, but he posted several this week, and I was going to tell you guys about them. And they kind of capture this, like, what good is Jesus, right? Like, if you're so powerful, why don't you save us from the coronavirus? He posted two memes this week. One was a picture of Jesus asleep in a boat, right? It's like a picture from a Sunday school literature of Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. You'll remember that miracle. And in the meme, somebody's saying, Jesus, get up, bro. There's a new virus and people are dying. But Jesus kind of stays asleep and says, tell them I'm working in mysterious ways. It's kind of a snarky way to say, Jesus isn't going to help you, right? I mean, Jesus help us? Yeah, that's not going to happen, right? He posted another one too. It was kind of a a Renaissance-style painting of God. You know, think about like a a, a painting by uh, Michelangelo of, of God, you know, kind of the old man with the beard sitting up on the clouds. And then underneath that picture, it said, social distance champion. champion." So like, you know, what we need is God to come and help us, but he's not about to be bothered with our, our mess. Extremely snarky. And unfortunately, we as Christians, we think like this too a lot about God, right? Like, you're the king. Come in on your horse and solve the problems. And sometimes our expectations of who he is doesn't match up with that. Three responses real quick, and then I'll finish. Three responses to this. First of all, to have these kind of expectations of who Jesus is are a little bit hypocritical. They can be hypocritical, right? You you ignore Jesus all the time. You don't spend time with him in his word. You don't spend time with him in prayer. And then something bad like this happens, and you post a meme about how Jesus never helps you out. You guys have all seen these these sorts of movies. I'm thinking right now, not of a specific movie, but the, the cheesy kind of 1980s teen movie that would be shown on the USA Network on Saturday afternoons. And there's a character in the movie who's kind of a bully, picks on people. And then there's another character, kind of a, a milder, weaker character that always gets picked on. And then at some point in the, in the narrative arc, the bully figures out that that character, the weaker character, has some sort of skill that I need. Maybe they've got money that the character needs to do. Maybe they've got some sort of like, maybe they know something about computers and the bully character needs that. And so he's got to go to the smaller character and he's got to say, look, I'm sorry, I need your help. And the the smaller character might say, well, I'll help you out if you say you're sorry. And and the the bully will say, I'm sorry. And the weaker character will say, what'd you say? He'll say, I said I'm sorry. That sort of thing. Well, this is what we do to Jesus. We do the exact same thing, only we don't come and say we're sorry. Like, we ignore him, we bully him, and then when things get rough, we go to him and say, yeah, fat lot of help you are. Come on, help us out now. It's a little bit hypocritical, and we all tend to be this sort of hypocrite. But to recognize it and say, Jesus gets to be who he is, 
And we don't get to put him in the categories that we want for him. What Jesus wants is not to help us out, but Jesus wants a relationship with us. Second of all, it's a little bit dangerous to have these sort of, look, to, to, to say, I can ignore Jesus, and then I'll go to him when I'm needy, and I'll ask him for help, is dangerous. It's, it's dangerous, not because he won't help you. He actually will. If you ignore Jesus, and you go to him when you need help and say, save me now, he'll do it. The dangerous part is, though, is that if you haven't been spending time getting to know Jesus, you won't understand what he's doing. You might mistake what happens next as him not saving you because it doesn't look like what you think saving is. It looks like what Jesus thinks saving is. And sometimes that means sickness. Sometimes that means brokenness. Sometimes it means death on a cross. And to just not know anything about Jesus and go to him for help could mean that you run the, the, run the risk of not understanding what he's doing. Third of all, and this is linked to this, like Jesus doesn't win by healing all the diseases right now. Sometimes he does. The story that kicks this event off in the Gospel of John is the raising from the dead of Lazarus. That's probably why all this crowd is so excited to see Jesus come into Jerusalem. Because in John, just days before, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Sometimes he does, but sometimes he doesn't. He himself does not avoid sickness. He himself does not avoid death. Sometimes the path that Jesus has for us to healing is the path of sickness and death. My 12-year-old asked me this week, in all seriousness, and if you know my 12-year-old, you'll know that a serious conversation with her is a rare thing indeed. She asked me in all seriousness, she said, is this coronavirus going to kill all of us? And really the only answer I had for her was, I don't know, it might. I doubt it, but if it doesn't, something else will. Look, let's suppose that sometime in the next year, there's this fantastic vaccine for the coronavirus. We'll all be excited, and we'll be excited for good reasons, because good health is better than bad health. Because being able to leave your house to go do basic things like hang out with your friends or go to the movies or go to a restaurant are all really pleasant. But if the coronavirus doesn't get us, something else will. And if that sounds like failure to you, you don't yet understand the path of the cross. I'm not saying it's not broken. I'm not saying it's not fallen. I'm not saying it's not a result of our sin. But what I am saying is don't lose sight of the fact that the glory and the power of Jesus is strong enough to swallow that up. And it, see, this is what he does, is he takes our sickness and he takes our death and he joins it. He makes it one with his so that his death, his wounds, bound to ours, heal ours. And that when he and his power rises from the dead, he heals all of our problems, especially the big problem of death. That's the kind of king Jesus is. That's the kind of glory and power that Jesus has. There's this poem that was written by a poet. He's actually um, a British pastor who lived during World War II. He's, World War I, he was actually on the front lines of World War I. His name was Edward Shalito. And he wrote this poem at the end of the war called Jesus of the Scars. And the last verse goes like this. It's a, it's a, it's a hymn to Jesus. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but you alone. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus uh, to die for us, to die to pay for our sins, to die to pay for our sicknesses, to die to pay for our weaknesses and our poverty and our social inadequacy and our eccentricities and the flubs that we make and the mistakes that we make. And we thank you for sending him to die to pay for the coronavirus. And we trust you this morning here on Palm Sunday. uh, We trust you. And and at, at the points where we don't trust you, we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us trust in you, trust in your son, in his type of kingship, to rule over all these things and to finally liberate us from all these things, either here in this life, but especially, and we know finally, in the resurrection life. We pray for everyone this morning who is struggling with sickness and especially those who are in places where the sickness might be more prevalent. We pray for our members and for all people who are living in Meridian Village. We pray for our members who are working in the healthcare industry and are around sick people by necessity all the time. We pray for those people who work in essential jobs and have to be out and about among people who may or may not be carriers. We pray that you would protect, but most of all, we pray that we would see all these events, whether it's our health or whether it's our sickness, as coming underneath the auspices of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who protects us, whatever that means, who preserves us, whatever that means, and who finally saves us. And we know that means in your resurrection from all these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's speak the words of the Apostles' Creed together as an act of faith in the God who saves us. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now pray together with me the prayer that Jesus himself taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. King Jesus rides to Jerusalem. No one can hinder thee. Hosanna to King David's son. No one can hinder thee. He rides upon a donkey small. No one can hinder thee. The King of Peace, the Lord of all.
Thank you.